Hello and welcome to the Day Minimus podcast. My name is Cameron Moyer. I'm the current podcast editor for Day Minimus. This week we were extraordinarily fortunate enough to get a chance to interview Julian Burnside QC, one of Melbourne's if not Australia's foremost public interest barristers and advocates. Julian Burnside has been involved in some of the most important public interest cases of the last three decades, including the Tampa case and the Trevorrow case. Recently, Julian also stood as the Greens candidate for Kuyong, and he's been an outspoken advocate for refugees for the last two decades. I was very fortunate to get to pick his brain on a number of topics, including what makes a successful barrister, balancing public interest and commercial work, and why the arts are so important to him. Unfortunately, I should note that we had some technical problems during recording, and you'll notice the audio quality drops substantially in the second half of the show. I can only apologise both to you and to Julian Burnside for this, but hopefully you'll still be able to enjoy Julian's insight. So, without further ado, here is Julian Burnside. Um, so thank you for being on the show. Sure. How did you come to study law in the first place? Uh, it was a series of accidents, actually. Um, at the end of year 12, I did better than anyone had expected. I got offered places in four or five or four or five different faculties at Melbourne and Monash. I had no idea what to do. Uh, and um, a former boyfriend of my sister uh, was doing law at Monash. So I thought, well, I'll do law at Monash because that'll... Uh, at least I'll know someone. Uh, as it happens, I never actually met him. <laughs> um, by the end of first year law, I realised that I wanted um, I wanted to have an income because up until then, I had actually really wanted to be in the arts, uh, specifically photography. But um, I, so I signed up for economics at Monash so I'm doing law and economics. And um, one of the things that was voluntary at Monash then, and I think still is, is mooting, which is like pretend court. And to do it, so I gravitated to it, of course. And um, so I did a lot of mooting. And in my second last year of law, I think, I was offered a place in the Monash InterVarsity Moving Team, which that year was going to be in Auckland. I hadn't even been to Tasmania. So the idea of a free trip to New Zealand was irresistible. So I did that. And um, to my surprise, I won the Blackton Cup as the best individual speaker. Um, and at the drinks prize giving thing, I was talking to the Chief Justice of New Zealand who'd presided over the final move. He asked me what I was going to do. And I didn't want to tell him I wanted to be a photographer. So I said, well, I'm thinking of being a management consultant, which was part of my thinking in relation to economics. And he said, you should go to the bar. It only occurred to me recently that it'd be funny if what he really meant was go and get another glass of wine. <laughs> anyway, so that's how I came to be a lawyer. Um, at Christmas time that year, another bloke who was on the InterVarsity mooting team gave me a copy of Clarence... Darrow by Irving Younger. I think Darrow has been the subject of a number of biographies. Um, and I think Irving Younger's was the one that he gave me. Darrow was a remarkable advocate in America in the late 19th and first half of the 20th century. Uh, he 
tended to advocate for causes like he was against the death sentence and so on. And um, so I thought, well, if that's what being an advocate is, that's the job for me. Uh, as it happened, because I had, because I went to the bar with an economics degree, I found myself being briefed straight away by the Income Tax Assessment Office because I understood spreadsheets and, you know, accounts pretty well. So um, it took until, well, I mean, everyone, everyone at the bar gets some human rights work, mainly sort of people who decide they can't pay. Um, but I volunteered at a community legal centre, which was really, really good experience. And um, I, it was not until the Tampa case that I found myself really concentrating on human rights issues. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I was going to come back to that later and just talk about um, how, because I think a lot of people would be surprised that for most of your career you weren't focused on um, human rights up until Tampa. Um, but so how do barristers often specialise? Do you notice that there are any certain streams that people wind up sort of, or um, I guess, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, look, the areas of speciality are typically personal injuries. You get a lot of people specialising in personal injuries work. Crime, obviously. Um, commercial, which was one of my specialities. Um, and I think quite a few people specialise in admin law. Mm. But, you know, they're the main ones, I think. Yeah. And do you think the, um, the path you took to the bar straight after um, law school would still be open to people? I mean, I know it's technically open, but um, do you think that that's still feasible? I would have thought it is. Um, yeah, I, mean, I know a lot of people tend to go to big law firms and rise to the ranks of junior associate before going to the bar. I think that's on the hope that their colleagues who also rise to the similar level will brief them. And if that is what happens after five years as a solicitor, they're being negligent. Because frankly, when you first go to the bar, you know almost nothing. And to brief a first year barrister on the assumption that they know as much as you do as a say fifth year solicitor is wrong in my opinion. Mm. But that's I think that's why a lot of people tend to remain as solicitors for a number of years because they think that they will know more about the job. In fact, they don't because being a barrister is largely about experience. It's not mm. about book learning. Right. So what sort of experiences do you think are important to um, pick up while you're at the bar um, and what sort of skills do you think it takes to be successful? Um, you've got to be able to stand on your feet and say what you think matters and, if possible, say it as briefly and succinctly as you can. There's a tendency amongst lawyers to waffle on endlessly because they think that, you know, that's what lawyers do. And, in fact, it is what a lot of lawyers do, but it's not a good course. Mm. How did you go about improving um, what do you think were the mistakes you made when you first started out that you tried to correct? 
Um, I suspect that I waffled on too much. I don't know, but uh, I'm guessing at that because that is a common fault. Mm. Um, look, I, beyond that, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I've had a very lucky time at the bar. I did, as I said, I got a lot of work for the tax office um, because I understood accounts. And that sort of blended into the... Um, the big commercial boom, the takeovers boom that happened in the mid 80s. And that in turn led to the, um, the collapse of a lot of companies. Uh, and that generated a lot of legal work. And I think I just rode the tide. I was lucky. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um. So, how did you come to um, shift towards public interest cases? How did you become involved in, um, I think it was the waterfront dispute you mentioned in, sorry, I've got a copy of Watching Out. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was, I think you mentioned that when you sort of started tilting more towards public interest cases. I don't remember saying that, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> um, uh, I think the waterfront dispute was a remarkable piece of litigation because it happened so incredibly fast. Um, I think the impact which that had on me, apart from my recognition that the court system was able to bend over backwards to deal with a major problem, um, it had the impact on me that I had grown up thinking that maybe... Um, maybe the union movement was not necessarily a good thing because I, I grew up, you understand, in a very liberal family, in a very liberal environment. I, mean, I, um, I was born in the year Robert Menzies began his record run as PM of Australia in Canberra. Um, and there was a liberal government in Canberra until just before I finished at university when Whitlam came in, in at the end of 72. So, you know, I, I grew up in a liberal country, um, a liberal country which I suspect would disapprove heartily of what Scott Morrison is doing these days or pretending to do. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up with the view that unions probably were not a good idea, but the, the waterfront dispute changed my view about that. Um, it was. I I don't know I I don't know whether it changed my view about the importance of social issues generally. It may may have made me stand back and start thinking about social issues a bit. Mm. So then, um, how did you become involved in Tampa? Well, again, that was an accident. Um, as you recall, the the Tampa headed towards Christmas Island um, after rescuing a bunch of mostly Afghan Hazaras um, in their little boat, the Palapa, which was heading from Indonesia to Australia, uh, began to fall apart. Um, it was the Australian government which asked the, the captain of the Tampa to keep an eye out for the Palapa and to look after people. He did that. 
and was amazed. He, when he saw the palapa, he thought that maybe it would carry 50 people and was astonished when 438 people climbed up the rope ladder over the deck, over the side. Anyway, so um, he, he took them toward Christmas Island because that was not very far away from where he was. And uh, as soon as he entered Australian territorial waters off Christmas Island, the Australian government sent out the SAS who took control of the bridge at gunpoint. Now, after that, we all saw snippets of what was happening because the airspace over Christmas Island was closed, but there were some photographs of the people on the steel decks of the Tampa in the tropical sun, not very far from the equator. And ever since childhood, I felt the heat very badly. Now, I felt sorry for the refugees, not because I knew anything about refugee law or policy, I didn't, but because I thought, well, how terrible it must be to be stuck on the deck of a steel ship in the tropical sun. And when a solicitor asked me if I would act pro bono for the refugees, I said yes. And by getting into the case, I came across a lot of people who knew a lot about refugees and refugee policy. And I was horrified at what the Australian government was doing. And I formed the rather simplistic view that if I started talking about it publicly, uh, then once we had persuaded 50% of the population plus one that it was wrong, the politics would shift. That was my thinking. I thought it would take six months. I was wrong about that as we're now in the 20th year. But what is not widely recognised is uh, actually there's two things. On a personal level, my wife, who is a jeweller um, and thinks like artists think, she said, this is just a terrible way to treat asylum seekers. It's not what Australia is like. We should set up spare rooms for refugees on the footing that every Australian house has got a spare room and refugees need somewhere to stay. That was her thinking. So from late 2001 on, we've had refugees living at home with us. Um, interestingly, the first was a Uyghur from Xinjiang in China and all the others have been Hazaras from Afghanistan. Uh, hence my recent concern about the genocide that's happening to the Uyghurs, the Hazaras, the Rohingyans, and the Kurds. Anyway, by doing that case, the, the second important point of it was that we got judgment from the trial judge in the Tampa case at quarter past two in the afternoon, Melbourne time, on the 11th of September, 2001. And it was just a matter of a few hours later that the terror attack on America happened and uh, all the rest is history. Mm -hmm. It may be that without that attack, my idea of talking for six months might have worked. But um, unfortunately, the Liberal governments and to a limited extent, I think the Labor governments have been terrible in calling boat people illegals. They don't break the law by coming here by boat or coming here without a visa and asking for asylum. And Scott Morrison, when he was immigration minister under Tony Abbott, um, made things even worse by saying that the issue was one of border protection. So the average punter who has really got a mortgage or rent to worry about and a family and a job and all that, they read in the Murdoch press that illegals are being pushed away uh, as an exercise in border protection or they're being locked up 
as an exercise in border protection. And given that most people recognise that we jail criminals um, to jail illegals uh, in order to protect our borders makes sense when you think about it. If you have not, if you have not got the incentive to look behind the dishonest rhetoric that you get in the Murdoch press. Mm. I think a, um, a common contrast that's coming up, especially recently, is between the attitude of the Malcolm Fraser government regarding the intake of refugees from Vietnam and the current attitude that's sort of exemplified by Tampa and the Abbott government. Um, what do you think changed between the Fraser years and Tampa? Um, I think Liberal governments since Fraser have been dishonest and the Labor opposition has been hopeless because the Labor opposition so craven it just wants power and that has been a problem i mean the you know when when kevin rudd became pm for the first time around in 20 what 2007 seven yeah yeah um he uh closed nauru and brought the people on nauru back to australia um when he was Prime Minister second time in 2013, uh, he actually 2007 can't be quite right for him, can it? Because he didn't he take over from Gillard, then Gillard took over from him. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. Rudd Mark, Kevin Rudd 07, that's right, you're right. Yeah. I was 2007. Yeah, I think it's 11 or 12. It's around. Yes. Yeah. Uh, when he became PM for the second time in 2012, he made offshore processing mandatory. Uh, although we had, interestingly, we had the um, we had the Medivac legislation, which has recently been repealed by the Morrison government. The Medivac legislation meant that people who were in offshore processing and were otherwise forbidden from ever settling in Australia. Um, they could be brought to Australia for medical treatment if they had a complaint which couldn't be dealt with by the medical services of uh, PNG or Nauru, as the case may be. Now, there was a bloke I helped recently who had been sent off to Manus because Manus was the place for unaccompanied men. Um, he was sent there. He was very quickly recognised by the PNG authorities as a genuine refugee. But after six or seven years on Manus, he must be six years, he developed a cardiac complaint and the PNG system wasn't able to help him. So he was medevaced to Australia. This is before the medevac legislation was repealed. Uh, he was brought to Australia from Manus by the Australian government for cardiac treatment as a refugee. But as soon as he got here, he was put into immigration detention and was held there for 18 months until he was sent to America under our refugee swap arrangement with America. And he never received the cardiac treatment that he had been brought here for. 
you know, the, the cruelty with which we are prepared to treat people just seeking a safe life is breathtaking. And I have mentioned on other occasions that it's very difficult to reconcile with our significant contribution to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, because at the end of World War II, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt decided that we needed a Universal Declaration of Human Rights. She spent the next two years working on it. Um, it was embraced by the world community. Australia back, back then, Australia had a population of what, 7 million, 7.5 million. And we contributed significantly to the formulation of the Universal Declaration. Uh, it was embraced by the world community in the United Nations General Assembly on the 10th of December, 1948. And it was an Australian, Doc Everett, who chaired the UN General Assembly that day. Um, Article 14 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says that every human being has the right to seek asylum. And if you look at Australian legislation, there is nothing in our legislation that makes it a criminal offence to come to Australia as a boat person or any other way uh, and seek asylum. So, um, Somewhere, somewhere along the way, and I think it was at the time of Tampa, um, the Australian government got dishonest about this and started slagging off at boat people. And they did that at enormous cost. You know, someone just before offshore processing became compulsory, someone did some numbers and worked out that if every asylum seeker arriving here as a boat person was offered a million dollars in cash and told to go to another country and spend it there and not to come to Australia, we would have saved money. If we were spending more than a million dollars per refugee, now that's insane. And the reason for that is that detention is so expensive and offshore detention is incredibly expensive. At, in Nauru right now, apparently there are no unprocessed asylum seekers in Nauru anymore. But we pay Nauru something like, is it $2,000 a month visa costs for the individuals who are held on Nauru and who were taken there or sent there by us. Um, we are spending almost a billion dollars, almost a billion dollars a year um, keeping people in Nauru, even though they tried to come to Australia. The biggest number of refugees we ever came arriving, ever had arriving in Australia was, I think, was it 25,000? It's going back a ways, it's before 2013. Um, so anyway, I, I understand, and I don't know for sure whether this is true, but I understand that Howard did the Tampa episode because he was hoping to get some votes across from Pauline Hanson. He was not looking good in the polls at that point. There had to be an election later that year. And so uh, Tampa was his way of showing that we could be tough to refugees, which was a way of getting some Pauline Hanson support. Um, it was a matter of immense good political fortune for him that 9-11 happened and that you know, at the end of the year, in November that year, he got a huge swing in his favour. So it's politics. Yeah. I do not know 
whether most Australians actually support what the Morrison and Howard governments have been doing to refugees. I hope they don't. If they, if they, if they do, if my position is a minority, then I would gladly leave here and go to New Zealand. No. But I, most Australians I've met have never actually met a refugee and they have no idea what we are doing to them or what sort of people they are. The re public response to the family from Bilawila suggests that we do have a degree of compassion. The response publicly to what's happening right now in Afghanistan suggests that we do have a sense of compassion and concern about people who are actually fleeing for their lives. What we fail to notice is that a lot of the refugees who come here are in fact fleeing for their lives. They're fleeing circumstances that are so terrible we have no idea what is happening to them. Um, now, I could have, well, subject to my wife's views, I could have probably given up on this issue about six or eight months after the Tampa episode. But, as it happens, I got a phone call on a Sunday night in May of 2002, which changed everything for me. Um, nothing really radically unusual about the circumstances, but it was uh, a phone call from Concar Panagiotidis, who runs the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre, which he had set up in June of the year before, I think, June of 2001, I think. Um, anyway, he, he rang me because ASRC were handling the protection application of a family who had fled Iran, not Muslims, they'd fled Iran and had come south towards Australia. They had arrived at Christian Island, they'd banged up in Wimmera Detention Centre, which at that time was crowded and very difficult. They, at the end of about a year in Wimmera, they were all doing it tough, but especially the 11-year-old girl. This was mum and dad and two daughters, 11 and 7 at the relevant time. The 11-year-old girl was really doing it hard after about 12 months in, in Wimmera. Uh, she had stopped eating, she'd stopped caring for herself, she'd stopped grooming herself, and a psychiatrist who heard about the case went to Wimmera, spoke to the kid, spoke to the family, delivered a devastating psych report in which he said, amongst other things, that this child needed daily psychiatric help. She, back then in Wimmera, uh, if you needed psychiatric help, you would get to see the visiting psychiatrist from New South Wales once every six or seven months. Okay? And I, I'm, I have met that psychiatrist. He has his own plane. He flies himself, used to fly himself to Wimmera um, in order to see people. So once every six or seven months, you would get to see him if you had psych needs. Um, the department, in their infinite mercy, um, sent the family from Wimmera in the South Australian desert to Maribyrnong in the western suburbs of Melbourne, and that's when Con's mob began acting for them. Um, on a Sunday night in May of, late May of 2002, while her mother and father and young sister were off in the mess hall having dinner, this little 12-year-old, 11-year-old, stuck in their cell, took a bedsheet and hanged herself. But she was only little, she didn't know how to tie the knot, she was still strangling when the family came back from dinner. 
She and her mother were taken to the general hospital nearby, along with two ACM guards. And because they were accompanied by two ACM guards, it was not because anyone thought that the kid would make a run for it, but because, as a matter of legal analysis, they were still in immigration detention. Con heard about this, went to the hospital late that evening, and said good day to the guards who know him pretty well. Said, I just want to speak to the mower to see what I can do to help. And they said, no, you can't see them because lawyers visiting us in immigration detention are nine to five. And they sent him away. Now, he rang me at 10 o'clock that night and told me what had just happened. I'm speechless. I'm still really angry about that case. Now, it's not, it's not the only case I'm aware of where we have treated people very badly. But that, coupled with the recent case of a bloke who came under the Act legislation, those two cases keep me going. Those are the two cases that I really think show how shocking we are. So, back to your question. Um, I think Tampa changed the way people see asylum seekers, but I think it's because, um, I think it's because we have been misled into thinking that they're criminals and that for our broad protection, we need to keep them away. Because uh, I, I hate to think that I'm a member of a society that actually approves of what we're doing, knowing the facts. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how do you find... Um, uh, ..continuing doing this work for a prolonged period of time? you find it um, rewarding to do the work or, I guess, um, sort of psychologically punishing to keep being exposed to all of this for 20 years now? It's psychologically punishing, but I'm not a quitter and I don't intend to give up on the task. But it has had the odd consequence that I'm now seeing in the community at large as a lawyer who does human rights work free of charge. And I get an amazing amount of traffic, email, letters, telephone calls um, from people who just want free legal help. And obviously I can't help all of them and I'm embarrassed anyway, so I can't take on a case unless I'm instructed by a solicitor. Um, it does get troublesome from time to time, especially because most people who contact you direct don't know how to summarise a problem or how or what, what piece of evidence you need. But just this morning I've had one or two telephone calls from people who just want legal help. You know, um, um, the legal profession needs to understand we need to do a lot of work in order to revive the reputation of the profession and maybe we should do more work free of charge because there's a lot of people who simply cannot afford lawyers. In fact, a call I had yesterday from someone who wanted some free legal help was someone who spent something like $30,000 on solicitors and has achieved nothing at all. Now that's not good. Lawyers, like I said, it's, it's um, commonly stated that lawyers do have a public obligation um, to use their professional skills for the public benefit. What do you think it is about 
the skills or the profession that imbues us with that obligation? Um, the fact that we can do it, I think, is part of the obligation. The fact that we otherwise make very good money and can afford to do free work is also part of the obligation. But look, I mean, the simple fact is, if you see someone by the roadside who's had a terrible accident and you can help, you should. Simply because you can. Yeah. Do you think there's a point at which taking on the obligations becomes too much? Because I've become interested recently in this idea of moral over-demandingness, where um, once you start taking on a certain level of obligations beyond your capacity, it diminishes your own ability to contribute. There's something to that? Um, I think there is. And I think the reason it, it gets to that point is that um, not enough lawyers seem to think that they have an obligation to help where they can. And that's why most members of the community um, think that A, lawyers are too expensive, um, and B, they get hold of my phone number and contact me. <laughs> um, so, in the last federal election, you stood for the seat of Kuyong, I believe. Yep. Um, because, because I have lived in Kuyong all my life. Like from the day I was born, I've lived in this electorate. this year I told the local branch of the Greens that I do not want to stand for the next election so uh, even though I think Frydenberg is a dishonest crook and should not hold a seat in Parliament let alone be Treasurer but it's the Morrison. Um, so what I was interested in putting to you was that um, I think in a Q&A session Paul Keating said that there are too many lawyers in Parliament I think he was trying to advocate for there being more economists or something like that. Do you think that there's some truth to um, the idea that lawyers can take up too much space in public advocacy and push out other voices? Um, that's possible. I should say, though, or even though Paul Keating is my wife's great political hero, he also introduced mandatory detention. So the, the punishing attitude which Australians have shown towards refugees in recent decades uh, is partly because of Paul Keating. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to ask a few questions as we move towards wrapping up. Um, the first is an ethics question that we often get law school and I just wanted your take on it. So imagine you're a graduate at a commercial law firm, a long-standing and highly valued client approaches you one day, asks you to carry out a series of transactions which would make it hard for an outside observer to track the movement of some money. On its own the transactions aren't illegal but they're obviously meant to hide something suspicious. What would you do? Um, I have some concern about the premises uh, if 
if what had been done is designed to hide something suspicious, I think was your word, but the transaction itself is not illegal, then I, I think mm, you need to be really confident that what it was designed to do was to hide something that was illegal. If there's no hiding something illegal, then the transaction is probably okay. I think I'd want to know more about it. But having said that, if, if you're in a big firm and it's an important client and what he's asking you to do is legal, then probably, if for no other reason than self-interest, you should probably do it. Because you're not breaking any law, you're not helping him break any law, if my assumption is correct that it's just suspicious, not illegal. Um, and you might as well keep your job because frankly a person with high morals and no money is worthless in today's society that's interesting take from you actually i wasn't expecting that um well that's interesting because i, th I would have thought it was self-evident that um good morals and no financial capacity to make use of those morals is basically unhelpful I mean, to be a public interest lawyer with the seat out of your pants is not going to be very useful because you will not be a public interest lawyer for long. Okay. Yeah, I think that's, that's a nuanced take on it. That's a very fair take. Um, so, the next question is... Um, was the most impactful or interesting non-law related experience you had at university? Golly, um, it's such a long time ago I'm having trouble remembering. Um, it probably happened at the Nottingham Hotel, that's all I can say. <laughs> I just don't know. Um, no, I, I can't answer that. Um, so the final question is just, um, I ask everyone for five recommendations in terms of uh, books or music or travel or something like that. Okay, well, music, which is central in my existence, I would say listen carefully, if you can, listen carefully to the Beethoven string quartets, um, especially the late string quartets, which are very, very difficult to understand, but they're worth the effort. Um, I, yeah, if that's too hard, then start more gently, to start with Beethoven symphonic music and gradually move outwards. Um, books, I like books, I've got a lot of books. Um, I see that. I've got, well, you're only seeing a fragment of it. Oh, um, I've got bookcases in every room in the house, I think. Um, I, I would love to recommend some fiction, but in recent years I've found myself more and more reading non-fiction, which is a pity. Um, I think Johnson's Dictionary is worth a good look, 
and it's worth concentrating on, especially his introduction to it. Um, I think it is worth probably knowing something about history. So whatever area of history you're interested in. Um, but if it's for lawyers, they need to concentrate on English history around the time of the Stuart monarchs because that is a really seminal time in, in, in English legal history. Um, I would also recommend all of the biographies of Clarence Darrow uh, because for anyone who wants to be a lawyer and is willing to see what some lawyers can do, read about Darrow. Darrow and I think F.E. Smith, uh, the English barrister, they would be probably the two greatest advocates ever. And they're the only two lawyers I can think of who have been the subject of biographies, not only during their life, but also after their death. I mean, after, after most lawyers die, they're forgotten immediately. Um, so being the subject of a biography after you're dead is quite a compliment. Um, uh, all the other areas you suggested, books, music? Um, travel, movies. Um, I don't get to watch a lot of movies for travel. I think Vietnam is hard to get past. Maybe in a few years to come, Afghanistan will be a place to visit. You need to understand the places where people have come into this country. Uh, and the interesting point about that is that, of course, we treated Vietnamese asylum seekers pretty well, and they have rewarded us by their contribution to our community. And Afghans can do the same. Um, we, we do not realise the extent to which we are cutting off our nose to spite our face um, in our treatment of refugees because in Australia refugees have built the place. Although that does remind me of um, a cartoon I saw in a book I read a couple of years ago. It was a black fellow standing at Sydney Cove on the 26th of June. 1788. He's looking down at the first fleet lying at anchor in Sydney Cove. And he's got a can of British paints in one hand and he's scrawled stop the boats. <laughs> Quite a good, interesting point. Um, so anyway, go to the countries that have helped build this country. I think England is still worth going to because I mean we were largely settled originally by people from well, England, Ireland, Scotland. Um, so it's worth understanding those roots. But more than anything else, uh, I would recommend concentrating on the arts. I mean, everyone has heard of Leonardo da Vinci. Everyone has heard of Beethoven. Everyone has heard of Leo Tolstoy. Can anyone name uh, a lawyer an accountant, an economist, a management consultant who was living and working at the same place at the same time? And the short answer is no. No one can. Now, in that simple observation, you see the importance of the arts. Artists are remembered 
centuries after they're dead, um, lawyers are not. We have very little to offer apart from our immediate services. And we need to think about, more broadly, we need to think about the things that are likely to help our society in the long term. And I hesitate to say it, but I suspect that in the long term, artists do a lot more for our community than lawyers do. In the immediate term, it may be that lawyers can offer immediate help, and that's important for each of us who lives just our own present lives. But, um, well, I've said that. I think that's an interesting thought to end on. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening through, and I apologise again for the audio quality. Given you made it this far, though, I'm guessing it wasn't too much of a problem. So I'll leave you until next week, but before that, here's a final book recommendation Julian made after we stopped the interview. So, until next time, I hope you enjoy your week. By the way, another book well worth reading is Body Count by Paddy Manning. What Body Count does is it puts in simple human terms what it's like to be in circumstances uh, where there's dramatic fires or floods or storms of other sorts. Um, and while he acknowledges that you cannot attribute all of these things to climate change, the fact is that the pattern of events uh, is a result of climate change and it's dreadful. And in fact, if we think, if we think we can get away with changing the climate because um, after all the impact of it is not going to be felt until our grandchildren's time, that's a big mistake. As people in southern Europe and Turkey and America and Canada are recognising right now. And what about the dreadful floods in Germany and Belgium? You know, these are things that are going to hit all of us and will blight our future immediately. And while no individual event can be attributed to climate change, the fact is that climate change is responsible for events of that general sort. And only a wild optimist like our current Prime Minister would dare say, look, these things um, are not time to worry about climate change. These things cannot be attributed to climate change. If we don't take urgent action, we're in for real trouble. Not, not, not a future generation, but this generation. <laughs>